My name is Casey Cease. I have the joy of serving as the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. And uh, I was talking, uh, it's interesting, I don't know about you all, but if you have younger kids, summer is not really restful. Amen? Um, because typically, we, like, we have this misunderstanding that summer is like a restful season and all that, and we intentionally at Christ Community Church slow down a bit, especially in July, on all the things we're doing. Our community groups kind of slow down and just meet for some meals, um, but, but there's like this slowing of rhythm that we've, we've collected this idea over the past seven years because what we found at the life of our church, summer is actually crazy. I was talking to a woman who doesn't go to our church recently, and I said, hey, how's your summer been? And she said, I cannot wait for my children to go back to school with a desperation that was felt, you know, and for those of you who homeschool, you're like, I, oh gosh, what have I done? You at least have a return to structure and things like that in, at home, but, um, but there's this idea of this rhythm, and as we're entering into the last week or two before school starts and the fall rhythm begins, um, I, I wanted to encourage you as, um, as we worship together that, that we might be focused and realigned towards God and enjoying His faithfulness and His ongoing provision for us. Um, and, and it's interesting. I, I, uh, the elders and I, we, we, you know, I presented. Hey, I want to teach through First Peter over the summer. Um, and if you go through First Peter and you read it, it's it's a lot about suffering and persecution and fun summer themes like that. Of you know, usually you want to do some fun like, hey, how to how don't waste your summer and you know five things to enjoy God more during the heat or you know how to tan and love God at the same time. And I'm like, hey, we're going to suffer and be persecuted for our faith. Sign up. But as we come to the pinnacle of the book of First Peter, his letter to the church in Asia Minor, the first generation Christians being persecuted for their faith, I want us to be reminded of this one truth, this main point, that Jesus empowers us to do good while suffering for his glory. Jesus empowers us to do good while suffering for his glory. So he doesn't cause us to suffer so that then we'll do good. And he doesn't call us just to do good while we're not suffering, but the Holy Spirit, supernatural, gospel promise, fuel that we need to do good while suffering has been provided for us through God's accomplished work in and through his son Jesus, empowered by his spirit, informed by his word. Because we've been discussing the last several weeks persecution in the church, especially in the time that Peter was writing. And, and just to give you a cursory overview, Christians in that culture were blamed for a lot. They were blamed by the Jewish people who were tied in with the, polit the politicians of the day for disrupting the Roman Empire. They were blamed by the Romans for causing trouble in the empire, not just because they weren't going along with what they culturally wanted to accomplish, but they were also taking a lot of heat because they wouldn't bow a knee to Caesar. They would not burn incense to another gods or false gods. And to be honest, a lot of people in this culture were pluralistic. Now, you, that may sound like a, a real big word or something, but basically, they didn't really care which god you worshipped as long as you didn't disrupt culture. Sound familiar? They didn't care which god you worshipped as long as you didn't disrupt culture, but if you would not bow and eat a Caesar and would not burn incense to all these other gods to keep them pleased, then you were the cause of things not going well in the Roman Empire. 
And so they were being judged not only for their unique way of living, their different way of living, but they were also then being judged and punished because they were being accused and blamed for disruptions that were happening. Now, the Roman people weren't necessarily looking at maybe poor leadership. If you've studied any history or gone through um, you know, any documentaries on the Roman Empire, no one wanted to blame bad leadership or perhaps the judgment of God, but instead, they wanted to blame the Christian. Now, in our country, in the United States, historically, it has been a benefit to be a nominal cultural Christian in the United States. It's been a benefit to belong to a local congregation. It helps politically. It helps with business. It helps with your kid's education. It helps get in that good old boy network. And so it's been beneficial historically up until around the 1950s or 60s when things began shifting in our culture. In fact, Ed Stetzer, who is a researcher, church planter, professor at at Wheaton, has said that there's a great decline in mainstream, mainline Christianity because primarily it is no longer culturally beneficial to align with evangelical Christian faith. It doesn't help anymore. Now down here in the South, it still has some benefits, but even now we're, we're sensing the rumbling of it not going the way it used to for being a part of the church. And as we see the mainstream culture's moral convictions continue to stray from the teachings of the Bible, there will be an increasing amount of persecution in the church. It's not if, it is a question of when and how. We see that in politics today. Before, you could have a clearly conservative candidate who at least appeared to have some moral grounding and footing, which is no longer the situation publicly or openly. There are other candidates maybe that may not get profiled, but even in politics, you see this continual pushing away from biblical Christianity. So suffering, it is happening in the church, not only in the United States, but in other parts of the world and has been in the other parts of the world for a long time, but it will continue to occur in an increasing manner. In fact, suffering will ultimately reveal our idols and it confronts us with opportunity to forsake them or to forsake the Lord. So when suffering comes, it begins exposing that in which we actually trust, who we actually trust. When faced with the decision to honor the Lord or to go our own way, we are confronted with that which ultimately matters to us. And it started making me ask myself questions, not only for myself, but for our congregation. Would we tithe or give anything if it wasn't for a tax write-off. If we didn't get a tax write-off, would we still give generously? Would we gather regularly if our lives or our comfort were in danger? Would we entrust our children at various times to pursue the Lord in missions rather than immediately go off to college? Because the reality is, and, and I've said this before, I will say it again, that one of the primary idols I see in our culture and in myself is comfort, safety, Security, stuff. And if you're a people pleaser in recovery, status. And when suffering comes, it exposes what we love. Our children can even be an idol. Something or someone that we value higher than the Lord himself. 
And hear me, as a dad of two beautiful daughters, it is difficult to entrust ultimately their care to him. But that's not merely suggestion. That is ultimately a command. And so we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19 this morning. What we're going to do is we're going to read the entire passage, and then we're going to break it down. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, those who are loved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God's rests, uh, spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, and that's literally if they're saved with difficulty, What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. As I said, the main point is Jesus empowers us to do good while suffering for his glory. The first thing we see here is that trials and suffering for Christ are to be expected. This is not a new revelation, but is one that has been true since the death and resurrection of Jesus And as mentioned, this is a more recent reality in our own country. He says, rejoice, and you have to ask the question, okay, but why? Because it's in suffering that we identify with Jesus. He says, do not be surprised. He says, do not be offended by the the fiery trial when it comes upon you for what? To test you, as though something strange were happening to you. I use the word offend because it's easy when I'm sitting with people who are newer to the faith, who are having um, tension in family relationships or friendships because they're realigning their life around Christ, for them to be shocked or surprised that their changes in behavior or life or patterns of doing things becomes an object of significant critique or isolation. When a man stops running around on his wife or stops looking at things he shouldn't be looking at, or when a woman begins changing her spending habits and living habits and maybe doesn't value as highly the external beauty and begins cultivating the inward godliness more frequently and more intentionally. When a family has more than 2.1 children because they believe that children are ultimately a blessing from the Lord and our arrows in our quiver, I don't look at Facebook newsfeed very often, but occasionally I'll swipe through it. I turn my blocker off and remind myself why I block my newsfeed. But we have a friend that lives, I mean, lives more in like a podunk area, like Hempstead or something. And they were at Walmart, or no, Home Depot, and literally a guy came up to him saying, do you need help, man? And he said, no, one, two, three, four, nope. Would barely help her and then referred her on to someone else. Now, some people just have a lot of kids because you might own land and need them like to do crop stuff. But most of us, 
believe that children are a blessing from the Lord and that we are called to be fruitful and multiply and to equip and train and disciple and sin. Or if you adopt a child from a different race or background and based on biblical convictions, or you intermarry with someone of a different race who has the same faith but different skin tone, and the condemnation and critique and judgment that you experience due to those things. There are various types of persecution and suffering that comes to believers, even in the context of conservative areas of the country, because the ways of Christ are increasingly becoming less in line with the ways of the world. And so Peter back then is reminding them and reminding us, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Look, suffering's no fun. Persecution's no fun. Isolation's no fun. Loneliness is no fun. But I wouldn't be a faithful preacher of God's word or a pastor to you if I wouldn't remind you that, hey, suffering and persecution are to be expected for the sake of Christ. And it may not be this Decade, it may be next or the next, but our kids, if they are truly born again and falling and pursuing Christ, very likely will face persecution and suffering because of the cause of the gospel. And so as we live into that truth and we begin to lean into that, when he says things that are wild, like, but rejoice. James says the same thing in James chapter 1. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, because then you have an opportunity for your steadfastness, your perseverance to increase. So you might be complete and lacking nothing. This is an opportunity that your faith is either exposed as lack thereof or non-existent, or is tried and processed and endured for greater purpose. And there are times that the suffering and persecution that we face isn't just at the hands of other people. Paul writes in Ephesians 4 that the battles we fight are not just against flesh and blood, but by spirits and principalities and spiritual warfare and attack. There are things that happen in us because of the the general fall of mankind, because of sin where our bodies don't hold up the way they were created and intended to, and there's suffering that results from that. Trials and suffering for Christ are to be expected. And we rejoice. Why? Because in our sufferings, we're able to identify with Jesus and his glory, who he is, his promises to sustain, to grow, to transform, to renew. Those promises are kept and made. And let me tell you something. There aren't many times in the midst of various trials that come along in life that it feels like in that moment, like, man, this is so good. I'm so glad for this that, you know, it's not sad or hurtful or anything. That's kind of like psychosis. And we see our Lord Jesus, fully God, fully man. In John chapter 11, when his friend Lazarus died, he wept. Maybe he wept because of unbelief of the people. Maybe he wept because his friend was dead. Maybe he wept because of the overall the effects of sin. But overall, we see King Jesus, who knows the end of the story, weep. We see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's awaiting his betrayal to be handed over and beaten and crucified, knowing that ultimately the Father is going to resurrect him from the dead, praying and sweating drops of blood, begging the Father, Father, if you will, take this cup from me, but not my will be done, but yours. 
And as I've said many times, fortunately, we do not serve a king that has not called us to do what he is unwilling to do, but rather we serve a king who has been tempted in all ways, had suffered in all ways, yet was without sin. He empowers us in and through our suffering. Verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The second thing I want us to see in this passage is that the spirit of God is our strength to endure suffering for the sake of Jesus. The Spirit of God is our strength to endure suffering for the sake of Jesus. And I'm going to unpack that more for you after the next section of of Scripture, but I want to start building this up for us to understand. Being insulted because of Jesus aligns us with our Savior, but it still hurts. Now, some people are insulted because using the name of God or the Word of God They don't use it as a scalpel, as it's been called to do, to finally separate bone and muscle. They use it as a machete and start hacking people up with the scriptures. Some people suffer because of the word of God because they're insufferable to handle. But you will find times where you stand up for the things of God. You stay in a marriage that the world would say, you never stay there. You forgive when the world would say, you don't forgive that. You welcome and invite those who should not be welcomed or invited. You go back to a flip phone because you can't help but look at things on your smartphone for the sake of God's glory and for the joy of those around you. And you're criticized for it. Some people are criticized for being a jerk for Jesus and Jesus in those situations get a bad rap but you can humbly and kindly say, I do believe the word of God that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. And he has made himself available to all types of people from all different types of background that anyone who would turn from their sin and believe in God will be accepted by God and forgiven by God and become a child of God. And you will still get heat for that. But it always says to do so gently. To do so gently. You're not going to literally, quote-unquote, scare hell out of people because you're screaming at them. Jesus rescues us from the pits of hell for his glory and for our good. Being insulted with Jesus, for Jesus, it aligns us. He understands what it is to be insulted because of his obedience to the Father. However, he warns us here, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So I've said this before, I'll say it again. You hear me repeating myself a lot. I do have plenty of things to say, but it's building and it helps. Don't sin just because you've been sinned against. Most of our reactions to sin is sin in our flesh. I struggle with that. You struggle with that. Your spouse can affirm that. Amen? Your friends can affirm that. Hopefully you have some friends that really know you. Don't sin in response to sin. When you're being persecuted, 
Don't need to fight. I was sitting with the students this past week. In case you don't know, I'm currently also the student pastor. What's up, bro? And basically what that means is like we all bring chips and we study the Bible. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount. And I sit with the students when Jesus is like, hey, if someone slaps your face, turn the other cheek. And you watch these juniors and seniors in high school, especially just kind of, you see siblings looking at their siblings like. <laughs> I had one kid literally say, he's like, it would infuriate my little brother if I told him when he's mouthing off to me, I'm going to go pray for him. And then he was thinking about doing it. He was like, that might be a good time. Like, no, 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 don't use the Lord's name in vain. But the ways of Christ, because we trust that victory is ours in Him, empowers us to not respond to sin with sin, but to respond with sin with patience and grace and mercy and our own repentance. It's easy when we're sinned against to want to point out the sins of others, but what if our suffering in the midst of suffering being sinned against, we see that as an invitation from the Lord to, to draw out some lingering sin in us? And we see it as an opportunity to do a self-reflection of ourselves and say, you know what, this is a pocket of sin for me, or you know what, I have been harsh in that situation, or haven't been forgiving in this way, or I haven't been acting in a loving manner. Because humility in Christ invites us to, rather than point the finger, to stand justified when we don't deserve it. Which liberates us to self-evaluate and to own our junk. Because Christ paid for that too. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But rather, let him glorify God in that name. In, in the name of Jesus, we, it, I would rather be accused and blamed for something that is true than to be accused and blamed for something that is peripheral or not very important. I'd rather allow my life to mature to a point that all that can be accused of me is that this guy really tries to live what he says he believes in a faithful, ongoing, persevering way. And when he messes up, he owns it. And when he messes up, um, he, he confesses. And when he messes up, it's, it's easier and easier to get him to see it over time. And that when he's offended, he doesn't hold accounts of wrong suffered, but ever releases to the Lord and offers venues and avenues to rebuild trust in relationship. Now that's idealistic. But that's what Christ has shown us. It's important to see what happened after he rose from the dead. He could have gone and found plenty of new disciples. He could have gone and said, look guys, y'all failed. You're fired. You fired. But except for the one that took the matters in his own hand, was unwilling to be forgiven and to forgive, all 11 others were restored and eventually lived their lives to the end for the glory of Christ, strengthened by him. That's good news. Verse 17 through 19. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The third thing I want us to note is this. We must mature in our daily walk so that we might do good through our suffering. 
We must daily pursue this relationship with God in preparation for what is to come. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. It is time for our idols to be exposed and identified and confessed and repented of, turned from, changed, realigned. It's time for us, because we have the freedom in Christ and because we have been forgiven and because we are loved and because he has adopted us as his sons and daughters, it is time for the refining fire of persecution and suffering to do its purposeful work of refining us and drawing from us and leading us to deeper intimacy with the only one who is able to rescue us. And it begins here with us because we know the judgment of God is active and will be fulfilled in his timing to those who don't believe. And when we begin to understand that his judgment is true, it is forthcoming, it has been promised, then we begin to take notice of the commands and commissionings of Jesus to be mindful of those who don't know him, to pray and to serve and to speak the gospel, to invite them to more of God and less of sin. That begins in here, if we believe what we believe about God and of his judgment, and if we believe what we believe about God and his mercy and his grace, it ought to boil up to a place, Lord willing, of overflow, that the trajectory of our life and the lens by which we view it begins and ends with Jesus. If the righteous is scarcely, and I had to do some research on this one because I was like, we're scarcely saved? I thought we were like fully saved. Well, scarcely is with difficulty. Literally, it's if the righteous is saved with difficulty, i.e. suffering, the requirement of death of a perfect sacrifice, what will be the what will become of the ungodly sinner? The answer to that hypothetical question is this, their demise. If we're saved only by trusting in Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, if we're only forgiven and accepted and adopted based upon his accomplished work, then what will become of the ungodly? There, there's... There's a reality we have to face for our unbelieving friends, our unbelieving family, our unbelieving children. That without embracing the sacrificial death, the powerful resurrection, the ascension of our Lord Jesus and his return, that any man, woman, or child that does not hope and trust full on in that perishes outside of God. So because of these truths that Jesus is our only hope for us to be able to glorify God in and through suffering and to do good, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will, interesting, according to God's will, I tried to find a translation that lightened that up a little bit, that those who suffer according to God's will, not outside of God's will. God's hands aren't tied and saying, man, I'm so sorry for your suffering. I know I let Jesus be put to death, but I did so you wouldn't have to. That's not the promise. 
Suffering is a part of the faith. And suffering is a gift and a reminder of our need for a Savior. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, what do they do? Entrust, hand over, make a deposit, guard, let it be kept, their souls to what? A faithful creator. Do you believe that God is faithful? Does your life preach that you believe God is faithful? It's interesting he chooses the word creator that gives a broad origin of ownership rights over all creation. They can entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We must mature in our daily walk so that we might do good through our suffering. I had a professor in seminary who pastored a multinational church. And I remember sitting in a class with him, and he always had these crazy stories that were true. And he told of a woman from Africa who her entire family was being slaughtered because of their faith in Christ. And she denied Jesus and was the only one that was allowed to live. And he talked of her ongoing shame and her ongoing guilt, and she would pray and beg God for another opportunity. Like, ask God, God, give me another opportunity to declare my allegiance and faith in you. And so what that evokes in us when you're like, okay, if a gun's being held to your child's head, and you're asked to deny Christ, what would you do? Now, for a God, if you're daily cultivating a relationship with God, if you're slowly increasing your ability to trust His Word and do what it says, and if you're depending on the Holy Spirit in a moment like that, we hope we would not deny Christ. And a very hard and objective statement would be that in that moment would reveal your true God. If you know me, I'm a softy though, and a lawyer's kid. And so I want to try to justify, well, but you know, uh. And so I began asking, like, how do you prepare a church to like have a faith like that? How do you, how do you make that possible? And so I started doing research because I, I don't know. I mean, I can think through the wax on, wax off, karate kid narrative of you got to train, you got to practice, you got to know. And it's hard to trust someone you don't spend much time with. That's something that for me to, to say, if you don't have, that's true in human relationships, it's true in spiritual relationships, like the amount of trust you'd have to have in that moment, yet you only spend about an hour to two hours a week thinking of God, it would be very hard to face that type of threat and persecution, would be for me. And so I went looking and researching, and uh, there was a, a, John Piper has this podcast called Ask Pastor John, and so I read that, and he had some good points, and then I looked at some other things, and I started looking at the scripture, and so um, this is a combination of research I've done for us, some things to think about. So if you're a note taker, I got seven things that will be on the screen, I can post them later, I can send you my notes. Because this, friends, is where we move beyond being a suburban church that is a country club for Christians who look nice 
and become a church of followers of Jesus who suffer and persevere and are persecuted and sacrifice and live out our faith in an ongoing, challenging, yet life-giving way. And I'm not pointing fingers at other churches. I'm not the pastor of any other churches. But what I will say here is that my friend Matt Chandler years ago said that he believes the American church, especially the suburban church, has a recurring, ongoing case of wasseria. And that our faith is active when we need it or when we want something. But we don't do much to cultivate. We, we love saying we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But if I talk to my wife as frequently as some of us talk to the Lord, we would not have a healthy marriage, and it would be hard to trust each other. And so I'm not trying to guilt you. This isn't legalism. I'm not saying read your Bible so that you'll be saved. No, I'm saying because you have been saved and gifted the Holy Spirit, pick up the Word of God. Wrestle with it. Struggle with it. Instead of like flirting in community, like, praise God, brother, I'm doing well. Got a raise. Hey, I'm doing bad, blah, blah, blah. Saying like, what's God teaching you? Nothing. I haven't been spending time with them. How can I help? You spend time with God. Well, I don't know where to start. Why don't you read one chapter of the Gospel of John a day every day for 21 days? Hey, guess what? It takes 21 days to form a habit. What does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply? Not what does it mean to me. What does it mean to you is irrelevant. That's where pluralism sneaks in. We make God into our own image rather than conforming to the image of God. So the first thing is it. Number one, be mindful of our eternal home. We have an inheritance and a promise called, called heaven. And it's not this wispy place where we have these wings and wear girlish robes, guys. Like, oh, I get a harp. No, it's a place of promise where the presence of God and the, the relief from grief and shame and sin and sickness are removed until the new heavens and earth are put in place and we're given dominion and freedom in it. So the first thing is be mindful of our eternal home. This is not our ultimate home. This isn't the best it gets. Most of us live with an if this, then that mentality. If I'm able to find a beautiful wife or a beautiful husband, then I'll be happy. No, you'll be sanctified. Be made more holy and refined and offended. Amen? Amen? Yeah. I've counseled some of y'all. Amen. Number two, understand there are far worse things than death. This is a big one. Death isn't the worst thing that can happen to you. I really started sticking with me when we went to Kenya, when we visited Kenya. I don't know. Um, I think that trip was Rick, myself, maybe JD on that trip. And I remember Linus, our pastor friend there, was like, hey, we got to stop by um, the hospital. They're releasing so-and-so's body real quick. Like, just a matter of fact. You know, for us, we're like, oh, someone died. Ooh. We don't really know how to engage that, right? Because we don't, we don't know how to enter into the crud storm of life with the tarp of grace and say, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm here. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not sure. What I, we'll figure it out. I trust Jesus. I'm not sure. But there are far worse things than death. Death is not the worst thing if you're a Christian. Many of us act like death is absolutely worse thing. Listen, I've sat with some of you after losing a spouse or a child. It's hard. It's horrible. Death has a sting. It's reminding us that there, death is a, the reality of general sin. But it's not the worst thing that can happen to us. Number three, ponder on the truth that Jesus already died for you. 
that your ultimate death that happens in this life is temporal because of the gruesome, horrific, unfair death of your Savior, Jesus. He already died for you. Therefore, death no longer is the final sentence. Death isn't the final definition. Death is really an opportunity to enter into fulfillment of God's intended creative purpose through Christ. So remember, he already died for you. That death no longer has the same effect. Which leads me to the next one, number four. Understanding, understand that suffering and death for Christ are not surprising in this world. It disorients me anytime I hear of a bombing at a church overseas or things that happen. But in those cultures, these people are aware of the risks they're taking. They understand the risk of gathering in a, in a house church in China. They understand the risk that they're taking in Egypt to be Christian. They understand in Syria that... If you're a Christian in Syria, you'll likely be kidnapped and used as a human shield and abused ongoingly. It would be easier to bow a knee to Allah than it would be to follow Jesus. Yet they do it. So understand that suffering and death for Christ are not surprising this world, right? He says in verse 14, if you're insulted for the name, I'm sorry, in verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Number five, meditate often on Philippians 1, 21 through 23. The apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Philippi, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Being with Christ is far better. And listen, I, I know as I was reading this and hearing, I was like, ooh, is my heart there? Is my heart there? I wanted to point out verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's important that the spirit of God is what empowers us in these moments to take that which we have learned and prepared and hoped and trusted to supernaturally carry us in those moments of persecution given us an eternal perspective that to live is Christ, to die is gain. And really for you and I, that is an opportunity for us to have a confession when we come to the Lord's table for the Lord's Supper saying, God, I am not convinced that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm not there yet, but I hope in you. Forgive me. Help me. Spirit, give me desire once again for the things that you desire. Realign my heart and my mind. Let sin be less satisfying in your glory. My aim, help me. And remember the body and the blood of Christ that sealed the promise of his faithfulness. I'm not expecting that we're there yet. I just want to make sure we're on the same track that God would have us on. That we can be honest and forthright saying, I'm not sure I'm there yet, but with God's help, by his word, by his power, help us to grow and mature there. Number six, you have to trust that God will take care of those you love if you die. 
No one likes thinking about that. It's like getting a will. No one's like, no one wants to get a will. Like, especially if you don't have much, you're like, mm, I'd rather not think about dying. But trust me, you can ask Brent, you can ask Nick to pray, you can ask other attorneys. You want to have a will that's updated. I'm not trying to give you a commercial or anything. I'm just saying no one wants to like think about those things. But so there are things we can do to prepare the way life insurance, wills, things like that. But no one likes to do that in the same way. No one's like to say like, I need to grow in my faith for God so that when I am persecuted or my children are persecuted, that we have the faith and the maturity to withstand and to not sin and to honor the Lord. And we're going to orient our family that way. And we're going to orient our life that way. And we're going to be salt and light out in the community. But this matters. And we're going to prepare. It's hard for me to think about that. Some days heaven sounds super nice. I'm not going to lie to you. I get to think about it a lot. You know, I I get to dream about the next life and everything else. But also, the ministry the Lord has here and the joy of seeing Him at work in my home and in my community and in our church family is encouraging and life-giving. But we need to trust that God will take care of those you love if you die. And number seven, ultimately, this is beyond us. The ability to persevere in the face of Persecution needs supernatural help. It needs supernatural help. Unfortunately, our Lord has promised to provide it. Listen, if you are micro suffering right now, maybe for the sake of Christ, maybe just due to the sin of others, you have the opportunity. And the, you have the opportunity and the power by God's grace to honor Him in it and through it. And to know and to trust that this is His workshop of grace to refine you and mature you through it. And that when He calls you home, whether today or in 20 years or 50 years from now, that He is enabling you and empowering you to live a life where at the end He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Because ultimately, as I said at the beginning, that we need to remember, Jesus empowers us to do good while suffering for His glory. Jesus Christ suffered at the hands of men and under the wrath of God so that you and I, any who believe, will be forgiven and accepted by God. There is no other way to make ourselves right with God, for God is perfect. And only Christ's perfection and His perfect sacrifice is acceptable as an offering for us to be saved. If you are here this morning and you've yet to place your hope and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, then I invite you this morning to cry out to God to ask Him to forgive you, and He will. If you're a follower of Jesus, and and Lord willing, the Word of God is challenged you and stretched you and rebuked you in a loving way, my prayer for you is that you would ask God to show next steps and have courage to at least speak to your spouse, if not to your community group leader as well, or to one of us to say, hey, I I need to repent and I'm taking steps forward. This is a safe place to not be okay. It's okay here to not be okay. It's not okay to stay not okay because Jesus has made all things okay. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks. 
And he took the bread, he gave thanks, he said, this is my body given for you. Take it and eat. And then he took the cup and said, take and drink every one of you. For this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness, or for the, as a sign of the new covenant. Take it and drink. In the moment I'm going to pray and invite us to respond, and that's our response is to come to the table with our confession or with our declaration or with our need. But if you're here this morning and if you have yet to place your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, don't come take of a remembrance. Place your hope and trust in Jesus.